Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing David Melby, originally from LA. His music has appeared in popular TV shows, including Friday Night Lights, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, and One Life to Live. He earned his master's and PhD in cinema and television from USC's School of Cinematic Arts. He also holds a master's in English literature and quantitative economics. David, welcome. I am super curious about your career path because you have accomplished some pretty cool things. Thank you. It's been a weird one. You know, most people that go and get PhDs are a little bit younger when they get into it. They're, they're typically people that find out that they're, they're good students. So they like studying. They kind of jump from one program to the next and they go from their BA to their MA to their PhD. And then they enter straight into the job market and they're still fairly young. So schools typically want to hire someone young that, they, that, that has a chance of sticking around for the, the duration, but that's not the way it happened with me. You know, I had a lot of musical ambitions, but I didn't want to teach music. I didn't want to be somebody who, who was using teaching as a way to say, oh, I can't, if I can't do music, I'll teach music. But for me, it was avid interest in film my whole life, but not necessarily having ambitions to be a filmmaker at that point and having much more creative drive to do music and music was my priority at that time i made a decision okay you should have an idea of what you want to do but by the time you finish your college years and for me ironically it wasn't anything that i was studying in college it was just kind of discovering that i i really wanted to make music even though i played music and been in bands and stuff in the context of having maybe my first original music band toward the end of college realized, okay, this is great. This is what I want to do. And then deciding that I should go back to Los Angeles where I grew up because I thought, oh, well, how convenient I can move back in with my parents and I'm in the heart, the heart of the entertainment industry. Wrong. Okay. That was the first big mistake I think I made with my career path in that sense is that I think I should have gone somewhere else, somewhere with a little bit more of an organic music scene, not just desperate people that come from faraway places to LA with stars in their eyes and typically are, are kind of glomming onto the trendy sounds and wanting to go the most obvious path toward trying to make it. And I'm talking mainly about music, but what I was doing was a bit different and wasn't really in a quite the mainstream 90s sound. It wasn't grunge and it wasn't pop derivatives of grunge or any of the other kind of 90s sounds. When I moved back in with my parents, I thought, well, this will be great. You know, I won't pay rent and I'll just find a band and start playing and all that. And it'll be nice. But it didn't turn out that way because it, living with your parents after college is, is if, if you've ever experienced it, it's not easy. They don't know how to treat you except as a teenager when you're living in their house. And so they're not just going to say, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're your own person. You can just come and go as you please. They're going to start saying, well, wait a minute, aren't you going to come tell us when you're, where you're going and when you're going to get in by with that and not really wanting to enter the normal job world. It was hard to move back in with my parents and try to 
do the whole band thing from there. It was hard to find a niche. And I'm not here to make excuses, but just to say that I think it would have been a better experience for me if I had gotten out of LA. Plus I grew up here. That's a healthy regret that I have. It's not the end of the world, but I I do have a healthy regret that I didn't try something different. So I stayed in LA for a long time. And it wasn't really until I had kind of done the band thing to death. So around the time that the last band I had fizzled out was when the whole global experience began because I managed to get a Fulbright grant to to teach and live in Jordan. I got over there. It was totally, obviously it was a big culture shock for me. I was very scared to go to the Middle East. Probably maybe I I, I got too confident with it because (laughs) I had a chance to go to Saudi Arabia and teach there. And that wasn't a lifestyle I think I would want to go back to. Uh, I don't regret going there, but I wouldn't go rushing back either. You know, I came home for a time when my father was still alive in LA, be close to him. And and then my wife, who was actually was a member of my last band, that's something you probably would find interesting. We got reconnected. We were never a couple. We never flirted or anything. She was actually the drummer's girlfriend. This is, this is why it sounds like Fleetwood Mac or something. I warned him. I said, don't bring a girlfriend in the band. It's always a bad idea. And then years later, we got in touch again. And it's funny because I guess a rock band, one of the perks of being a famous rock band or whatever is that you go and tour the world. The irony there, I think, is that those people never get much chance to go out and explore. They're always on the move. They're going from city to city, gig to gig. And I did that too, in a much more desperate context. I went, you know, independent grassroots tours, went overseas to, to England a couple of times and even to a little bit of Europe. What were you teaching abroad? Okay, so it's always been film and media studies, production a little bit too, which is kind of veering a little bit from my training. But, and you would say, well, how are you doing that abroad? It's always been English. So it's not that I'm polylingual. It's just that they've been university situations where the school was actually deciding that English would be the, the language of choice. And that's been great. It's not somebody who's a, an expert in foreign languages. I did study some, a lot of Spanish and French and things, but I never really got so fluent. It's been great to go and teach these in English in these other environments. Now, of course, that's challenging because these are students that are speaking English as, a, as their non-native language and their abilities to do so vary. And so that makes it a, quite a, a challenge in the classroom because sometimes you're not just dealing with students that might be shy or maybe they're afraid they're going to get the answer wrong, whatever. They're afraid to speak because they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed that their English skills are so poor that they're not, that they're going to make a mistake. So then they don't end up raising their hand or, or, or whatever. So it can be a, another challenge to just get them to uh, engage in discussion in the classroom. But yeah, it, this, this applies to Jordan. This applies to Saudi Arabia, China, Russia. These were all English speaking situations. And that's not totally common either, obviously. Uh, Russia, it's extremely rare for a university to be teaching in English. So this was kind of a little boutique liberal arts institution that was connected to a larger university, but they're considered to be sort of experimental. What were they excited to learn? Well, you know, it's fun to teach film because everybody likes movies. So it's a nice thing to teach and you, you can pretty much get people interested. You have the advantage of getting people interested, even if they're not film majors or, they're, or they don't have aspirations to make movies or be media studies students. You know, what I was doing in Russia is take your cell phones, get into a crew of four people and go out and shoot little narrative films and use the technique that we're studying. Say, for example, we're studying silent movies. 
course they're going to be bored watching silent films, black and white films from a hundred years ago. But if it's something like George Melius' Trip to the Moon, which is still an entertaining film to some extent, it's full of stop motion effects where they're, they're just turning off the camera, kicking the actor out and have it lighting a smoke bomb and then running the camera again. And it looks like they've disappeared into a poof of smoke. So it's easy for me to, to explain how the effect is created and say, now you guys go and create a little story. Don't just, not just gimmicks and stop motion fooling around, but create a kind of a story where it is, it involves stop motion for three minutes, whatever, three, four minute film. And, and then, you know, cut it up together, cut it together using laptop software, whatever you have, iMovie and, and bring it back to class and we'll have a little screening. And they really love that, uh, the Russian students. And it's something that I plan to do, you know, if and when I teach film history. So it's not always interesting. And students typically come in and they think it should be about new movies and what, they, what they're familiar with. And then sometimes they'll even make a comment to me in my evals and say, how come we didn't watch any new movies? And film class is not meant to entertain you. Was there anything that you didn't know that they introduced you to? All these countries that I've taught in, they typically will mention some maybe a film from their own country that I don't know. I'm not a scholar of Chinese cinema. I'm not really a scholar of Middle Eastern cinema, and I'm not really a scholar of Russian cinema, but I do have some experience watching films from those places. But interestingly, the films that I know from their countries, they typically don't know because they're older. That's really it, you know? And this is the other part that's a little bit sad about globalization and how much influence America has is that they, they're more familiar with Hollywood product than films from their own country. How did you find out about those opportunities abroad? There are websites for higher education to find jobs. And these days, those schools that are looking to hire internationally, somebody like me who's teaching in English, they would use those websites. Chronicle of Higher Education, for example. I mean, that's not necessarily the one I use the most, but there are websites that uh, post jobs internationally for, for professors. For all the challenges you know, of a job that takes a lot of time and energy and has a lot of different kinds of responsibilities and things that end up chewing up your time for the amount of money that you're actually paid in the end. I think that it's one of the great rewards for me is that there are a few jobs that you could find where you get to go and teach internationally like this in different countries. And there are certainly out there, you know, there are people that have international business functions and go from country to country and, and whatnot. But I think it's a little harder. And most career tracks are kind of based in one area. And, and it's typically going, if it's English, it's going to be the United States or maybe England. But even England is tough. They don't tend to hire foreigners. And a lot of countries that are part of the British Commonwealth, I found, seem more inclined to hire their own. They have their rules. And a lot of countries are like this. There are rules about you cannot hire a foreigner unless that foreigner has some expertise that nobody local has. Now, you did say that in the beginning, you didn't want to be a teacher. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't my first choice for a career path. I wanted to do music. You could say that maybe that first time I hit on that impulse was when I was in junior high. That was the first time I really started having bands. Sixth grade, I started learning to play the bass and, you know, wanting to, to form bands. And I told my parents at that time, I think it was seventh grade, I'd said, I don't care about college. I just want to be in a band and play music. And they kind of rolled their eyes and didn't get into it with me because I was only in seventh grade. And they, they were also somewhat traditional middle-class American family. You know, the band thing kind of 
fell by the wayside in high school. I stopped doing the band thing. That's probably when I should have really been doing it the most, but I, I switched high schools and I wasn't really continuing with the band stuff. I just was focused more on being a, you know, a teenager and getting, you know, good grades and thinking about college, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And I thought that, oh, maybe business was makes sense. I'll choose the businessman path. But when I did get on into my undergrad years, almost right away, I thought, okay, well, this is the best path I can do to head on to an MBA business path. But I was bored. I, I just, by the time I was in my third year, my junior year, I just thought, is this it? Is this college? Because this hasn't really been inspiring to me. And on, to be honest with you, my grades have suffered because I haven't really been inspired with it. And if anything, I think the college was probably, or the major was designed well in the sense that in high school, there are many ways to get good grades, even if you're not interested in the subject. In my particular college experience, that was less so. It was really sort of, you could get Bs, but to get an A, you had to really be inside the material. And I just couldn't get inside it. I couldn't just dutifully do my homework and read the chapters and then go and get the grades anymore. It was something beyond that, that I didn't feel I was grasping. I guess some of that had to do with professors that weren't speaking English very well sometimes, and I couldn't understand anything they were saying, but I'm not blaming them as much as I just don't feel like I was inspired by that quantitative oriented stuff. It was actually my oldest half-sister. I talked to her. I said, what am I going to do? I, I'm not really getting a lot of gratification from all this. And she said, well, get out and take other classes and experiment. So when I started doing that, that's when it really opened up. I started taking literature, art, history, all these humanities courses. And then I, I never, I never looked back. I, I just, this is, I love all this stuff. And, and I added a major in, in literature and, uh, and added a minor in the classics and stayed an extra year in college just so I could do all that. So I did really sort of fall in love with learning at that point. I don't think I was in love with learning as a teenager in high school. Usually few, I, I, and I know few high school students are because I was a substitute teacher for a long time having to babysit students and you know you just get a sense that that's why I never was wanted to be a high school teacher I, I didn't feel that the students are are that engaged they they're there because they feel they have to be there where yeah. does getting your music into one life to live and queer eye for the straight guy fit into all of that in the 90s there was a massive transformation in the music industry into the digital era into the era of the internet into the era of put casting out LPs, even though they're coming back now, you know, you had CDs coming up for a while, but it was sort of moving into MP3s and also a sort of a home studio digital environment where because everything was transferring from changing from analog recording, you no longer had to hire an expensive professional studio. So you, you had this huge rise of independent music making because of that. And with that, a whole peripheral industry developed of companies that would make one form of promise or another of what they could do for your your career in the music industry, whether it be a big PR campaign to promote the record that you made or a radio campaign to get your music played on college stations and other local online venues. Or it could even be soliciting your music to a major label for you because they would promise that they could get your music in front of the right people, which isn't necessarily true at all. These companies saw an opportunity to make a lot of money off of the desperation of so many musicians that had stars in their eyes thinking, well, now something that I never thought I could do, you know, I can record now and 
play around with these home recording and make music that sounds at least reasonably professional, at least in terms of the recording quality, I can do this. So yeah, I, I need all this help. I got involved with these companies. Now, one other, another branch among these is a music placement company. They're taking music that is not necessarily signed record label material that, that is usually channeled through major labels. Now there are companies that, that will say, we'll take your unknown music. We can market it to these various studio production houses that want music. Typically, they want it to sound like something, even just like a particular song that is well-known. They'll take that. It'll cost them a lot less and they'll throw that in. Now, that's not exactly what happened in my case, because I don't think that the music that was selected from my catalog sounded like some recent hit that Fiona Apple or somebody in the 90s was doing. It was probably just, it happened, they wanted a certain quality. Can you give me something that sounds sort of like this? And Or maybe give me something that's funky, instrumental, whatever. And then it was, samples were given to them and they said, okay, this sounds good. And that's how those songs would would have been picked. How do royalties yeah, that, work? You typically sign up with a publishing organization like ASCAP or BMI or the two big ones that represent internationally, but predominantly American artists. Even if you're not with a major recording label, you can sign up with them and, and have your your publishing rights represented by that company, those companies. And it's usually not expensive or it doesn't really cost much. And then you typically have to go through some kind of a distribution channel. That's another leg of what I've been telling you about with the music industry transformation. What came along was this brilliant idea to take every all these independent bands and say, we'll take your music for you. And for a fee, we will channel it through all these various other companies and distribution channels and, and whatnot. And I'm talking about CD Baby. That's the company that came along. It was another one of these kind of digital entrepreneurial ventures that, that really hit a stride. It's kind of like MySpace. People think that Facebook was the first of its kind, but it wasn't. MySpace was first and it was huge. Everybody had a MySpace page. CD Baby came up through one guy and got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because there are just all these bands out there with stars in their eyes thinking maybe something big could happen. But in the meantime, we can record our own album and we can get it printed on CDs even. And we'll just, this company, we pay them a hundred bucks or, and they will take care of all the other stuff. So what That's happened it. when you got your music into some fairly successful programs? You will make a little bit of residual money when your music is in a show, but it's not big money. How much are we talking? Well, like a few hundred bucks over the years, you know, I mean, it's not like you're going to get a, a check for $10,000 or something like that because your song. But music licensing are big checks. Like how come you yeah, haven't gone that can, route? Probably because I think when you have lyrics in the song and the lyrics are heard, the money is a lot more. They use instrumental music a lot. So probably the music that was taken was instrumental passages as what I'm guessing. I honestly, I, I'm trying to remember if I ever tracked down the shows where the music was played and what I heard and, and if there were lyrics, but I don't, I think it was the instrumental bits. You know, usually you're not going to have a song with vocals in the background of a sitcom or those kinds of shows, unless there's really an important reason for that. It's usually just going to be some kind of a little passing or background music. And so, yeah, I mean, it, the money adds up if you start having lots of placements, but one or a few placements, you know, aren't going to allow you to, to just rest on easy street. Do you play music to your baby? Not as much. I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that it's not happening as, as much as I, sh I should be doing it, but he's pretty young a little bit. He likes it when 
my wife and I, either one of us sing. So it's pretty encouraging that I should be getting out the guitar and, and playing songs for him. But, you know, he's still pretty young. I have time. And I certainly don't want to get to a point where he, he knows my catalog and gets sick of it. You want to do that right now? You have to bring the baby down here, of course. Oh, my God. He's so cute. I have a two-year-old. See, he's kind of fascinated. <laughs> that is the sweetest. You love being a dad? Yeah, of course. <laughs> he's interested, but I'm not sure he's made up his mind yet, but I probably really need to sing to him, so... That's so sweet. Did you always want to be a dad? Tell me about that chapter. No, I was really dedicated to music. And, and there were times when, you know, I was, I was watching my friends get married and starting families. And I, and I was thinking, you know, that's, that's just not what I, I don't want to do that. It's going to take, it's going to distract me from my purpose, my artistic purpose. But I got to a point where, yeah, as I told you, I got to a point where I didn't want to do music anymore. And I was getting older and I and I, I had been running this academic track at the same time. I saw my friends raising families and I and their friends that have musical paths with me and also friends that have that I met in, in graduate school that have film studies paths. And I watched that that side of that dimension of their lives. And I started to think, that's nice. I, I would hate to miss that. And I started to get more of an impulse of feeling like, okay, I want to get married. I'm ready to get married. I wasn't ready to get married before. And now I'm ready to get married. And, and getting married for me represented having a family, not just, okay, I want to find a, a partner and be with that partner. For me, it also involved having kids. My wife certainly gave me the impression at first that she wasn't interested in having kids, but I just waited and I thought she'll, maybe, she'll probably come around and hopefully she'll through that and change your mind. It was sort of having faith and it worked out. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? I'd like to know what he, he thinks about all this. And okay, thank you so much. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Very interesting story. The music man, now really a film director and teacher and has found every path of still striving to move forward in his life. He's had so many twists and turns and where every reality that projected it would be by doing it a certain way, he found out the hard way that a lot of that just ain't the way it's done. It's quite a wake up call. I like the story that about going to Los Angeles, finally decide to give music this one more go. And then he found out that he's not the only one that has thought of that that desperate people go to LA with this la la land concept of making it big, that if they, whether they wait tables or wait it out, that they'll get their big break. And it's almost like a bunch of crowded people trying to get, get into a subway. You know what I mean? Everybody knows that LA is the market. And yet, what did he say? It would have been easier to have picked an off market to really see if he could have built it up. But, you know, at a certain point, you are able to perceive that if you want to be a father, if you want to do something with your life, isn't it funny how we all have, no matter what our game plan is, is that over time, you have to be able to satisfy certain goals and adapt to the situation or the time 
period that you're in. So what, what you're doing at 20, sometimes you can't relive that at 40. What you do at 30, you can't necessarily relive and go down that path at 50. You have to be able to develop yourself as you're going along without starting all over again, thinking that you can pick up the beat where you left off if you've dropped the beat for five years or 10 years. I think that that's also a very interesting observance. He also found that, you know, a lot of people are studying at college. I went to school with a lot of people that I knew in college. They were studying certain things. They thought that's what they wanted to be. And so many of them drop out after a year or two. And it's not necessarily that they were stupid or they couldn't do it. They just couldn't concentrate. They didn't really have a passion for what they were doing. But once you find a passion for studying and learning something that really interests you, then you have a chance to really develop your skills. And he found that learning the arts and literature not only made him wiser, but gave him then the opportunity where he enjoyed learning. And once you enjoy learning, you're able to then build your skills for the future. It doesn't matter what you're studying. It is kind of a shame that I don't know how good of a musician he would have been, but it didn't turn out right. The pieces didn't fall into place. You have to sometimes, even though that's what you thought you were meant to be, you have to also be realistic and sometimes find other passions and other directions as the timeline of your life goes forward. We can't just live in the past as well. You've got to sometimes create a whole new beat. And isn't that what he did? Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 